when I started working in the lab about 15 years ago, the cost to sequence human genome was over $10 million. Today, it costs you a few hundred dollars, two to three hundred dollars. The only missing piece here is usability of the data. We are not trying to replace the tech stack of a biotech company. We try to make their tool center operable while making their data usable. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Hello and welcome back. I'm Alex Merwin from AWS. Today, my colleague Yin He from AWS welcomes Guru Singh to the show. Guru is the founder and CEO of SciSpot, who helps over 100 biotechs collect, clean, and activate their data. SciSpot builds connectors to aggregate disconnected data into knowledge graphs, preparing it for analysis and AI, thus supercharging R&D. A decade ago, biotech work was 90% wet lab and 10% dry lab, but it's closer to 50-50 today, creating friction for scientists who have to combine, annotate, and analyze data manually. SciSpot aims to fully automate these workflows so scientists can focus purely on experimentation. We'll cover Guru's vision for in silico models replacing animal testing, the monumental opportunity to reduce drug development timelines from a decade to months, and many other topics. Enough from me, let's hand it over to Yin. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. Excited to guest host the session today. My name is Yin He, and I lead our work with early-stage healthcare and life sciences startups and investors at AWS. I'm trained as a wet lab scientist with a PhD in molecular biology and genomics. Prior to AWS, I was an early employee and operator at a venture-backed startup building cloud labs and software tools to help pharma and biotechs accelerate their work. All critical components of building lab of the future which is the reason I'm so excited to be joined today by Guru Singh, founder and CEO of SciSpot. I actually had the opportunity to meet the SciSpot team back in 2021 when they were going through Y Combinator, and it's been a privilege to be able to watch and follow their growth and success. Guru, welcome. Thank you so much, Yen. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to share more. All right. To get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about SciSpot and what you all do? Sure, we turn biotech companies into AI powerhouses. We provide them data infrastructure, help them bring all of their data in one place and create a knowledge graph out of it. So they are ready to use their data, train their AI ML models. I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about what it means to, to be an AI powerhouse? That's a great question. Biotech companies' biggest asset is their data. They generate Significant amount of data, relatively inexpensively. When I started working in the lab about 15 years ago, the cost to sequence human genome was over $10 million. Today, it costs you a few hundred dollars, two to three hundred dollars. These companies are generating big data quite inexpensively, again, relatively speaking. At the same time, we have all the AI models to do work for us. The only missing piece here is usability of the data. So generating data is all taken care of. Advanced AI model, we have them now, thanks to all the key players in the AI space. But most biotech companies struggle with their data usability. 80 to 90% of their data is not usable. And the reason is their data is disconnected. Data is siloed across different tools, different file formats, 
Uh, they are working with external partners. So again, data comes in different file formats. They use multiple instruments. So data comes in different shapes and forms. With our data platform, we have built connector for different data sources, whether you're working with CROs or using instrument and bringing data in faster format, fast queue, uh, you name it. System uh, identifies the file format, transforms it, aggregates that data and creates ontology out of it. Through entity recognition, we label and classify the data. So they are, data is always ready to be utilized. There's, data is always ready to be analyzed. Got it. This isn't a new challenge. I was in the, the lab many years ago, and it was the exact same challenge. Can you talk about SciSpot and your differentiation and how you think about this problem and the solution? Ten years ago, the biggest need in the industry was data management. So we did see emergence of electronic lab notebook, LIMS system, LES system. So most of these tools were designed as a workflow management, data management tool, and that was the need of that time. Today, the need is more data science because computational element is growing. So there's no more just wet lab. There's significant portion of dry lab that needs access to data. Usability of the data is important. So our focus is more on usability of the data and also very agnostic approach. So we don't try to become the only platform of a biotech company. We respect their current tech stack. We understand as they grow, they will need more specialized tools. They will need specialized tools for mole bio workflow, like sequence design. They will need advanced analytics tools for different type of data. Respecting all of that, we act as a glue to stitch together data stored across different places. So you can set up your sources, you can set up your destination, design your entire flow. So that's how we differentiate. We are not trying to replace the tech stack of a biotech company. We try to make their tools interoperable while making their data usable. Yeah, and I've always been fascinated about how we're looking at this lab of the future concept. And I think there's various different folks and organizations in the space of what trying to define what that looks like. If we were to, to time travel, say, a couple decades into the future, hopefully less, what, in your opinion, does the lab of the future look like? And what year are we talking about? Sure. Let's go to the future incrementally. <laughs> so I will start with, let's say, we are in 2030. So how it will be different from today? Like, let, let's talk about history a little bit, then we will talk 2030 and maybe 2050. So 10 years ago, when I met any biotech founders or biotech startups, 90% of their work was focused on wet lab, not more. 10% of that was computational, like dry lab, that's the term we use. Today at SciSpot, when we onboard a customer, and also because we also focus on modern companies, okay. yeah, focus, even 50% or 60% of their work is a dry lab. Remaining is wet lab. And dry lab comes into play before wet lab. Let's say they're designing protein molecules, small molecules in silico. Then some companies even have very sophisticated in silico models to predict if this candidate is going to have drug-like properties, the candidate is going to be safe enough. And then they have to validate that in real world using wet lab techniques. After that, there's another drug, uh, dry lab comes into play, which is more analysis, train their AI models, so the feedback loop in place. But now let's come to 2030. In 2030, we believe most companies, biotech companies, will start as dry labs. They will start with 90% of their workflow will be dry lab, and they will support it with 
some wet lab uh, workflows. But if I have to even go ahead in the future, let's say 2050, my hope is there will be no wet lab. Hopefully, we will have enough data, shared data, historical data, well-structured, harmonized, verified. So we will be able to create in silico models, not for animals. Why would you create uh, animal model if you can recapitulate real patient disease condition in silico? So ideally, we will have more patient in silico model to create our drugs to do efficacy study, safety study, drug design. So our goal is, uh, as an industry, I believe it should be to do the things more smartly, all in silico, and rather than taking a decade, because biology has so many variables and uh, unpredictability, for obvious reasons, there's billions of years of evolutionary forces behind it. But hopefully we will make things more predictable and uh, more dry lab focus. We'll have more control uh, over our R&D and bring drugs to market, not in decades, uh, hopefully in months or years. Yeah, I, I love that. And it made me think about in the past when we had humans in the loop and, and where a lot of human capital was spent was around the manual tasks, doing those wet lab experiments and even the, the, the manual analysis. And so we're starting to see some of the, the skill sets, right, shift as what you're envisioning to be much more dry lab versus wet lab. Can you talk like for folks who are looking to start in this industry or, or stay in this industry, where do you see humans in the loop in the future? And what are some of these essential skills that these folks need to have? That's a great question. I think humans will always be in the loop. Unless we go 100 years ahead, we don't know what will happen mm -hmm. then. But we need humans to add limitations, constraints to AI. The way we are seeing advances I don't know in 10 years, 20 years, what type of godly powers we will see with our AI models. But we will always need humans to direct. We will act more like a manager, humans, rather than as someone to executing things, if that makes sense. That's another trend we are seeing. So when I used to manage marketing team in my previous roles, I had like access to eight, 10 team members. Today at SciSpot, I do all of that with one or two people and I do 10x more work. And thanks to AI. So we will always need humans, but we are creating a world of abundance. So we will see solo entrepreneurs running the entire program rather than 10,000 people running a pharma company. But these humans will act more like managers. They will act more like directors, adding directions, add more like someone adding limitations or creating rules, if that makes sense. I want to go back to your earlier response around 2050, no wet lab, where we're going to hold you to it. So we'll come and revisit this conversation. But I think biology is unique in that we don't have a lot of really great models, even though, as you mentioned, especially since we've had techniques like sequencing and uh, lab automation, we've been able to generate much more data at scale. How come we're still gapped right, in terms of this like model space? And what can we do to ensure that we develop better models in this? Even if you look at the drug discovery pipeline, it's still completely unpredictable at every stage, even when you reach clinicals in terms of whether something will get FDA approvals. If you think about that pipeline, yeah, where can we, where do you see the lowest hanging fruit? Where can we make some advances in thinking about creating better models and being able to, to better predict the outcomes of, of early stage discovery? That's a, a good point. I've been thinking about it because I think running an experiment on animals is 
unethical, cruel. We humans justify that it will save lives, which makes sense too. But it's very inefficient. Even if you see drugs that succeed in clinic after preclinical, meaning after testing drugs and animals, the conversion rate is really bad. So we cannot say animal models are really working. First, we have to find a way how to replace animals before we talk about replacing humans in clinical trial. So to directly come to humans, then they are the beneficiary without really testing this animals. I don't know again when we will be able to make that happen and by 2050, 2060, 2070. So we need all the data around all the variables. We need to have better understanding of diseases, the condition before we can even recapitulate that in the real world. But there are so many unknowns, so many variables, as I said. Like biology is complex. There's billions of years of evolutionary forces. It's, it's hard to know everything. But hopefully we will have enough data and in combination with AI, we will be able to make predictions that if the drug is going to bind, if the drug is going to be safe enough, if the drug is going to be efficacious enough and replace animals from this whole process. And then hopefully we will be able to replace humans in clinical trials. But to create that model, we need more data. But currently, data is not just scattered within companies. Data is scattered across the industry. Mm-hmm. So I used to work for scientist.com, uh, which is like a platform and science exchange. These are like platforms where you can outsource research. One trend I notice is most companies outsource very similar things. So I used to think, why can't they just share it? It doesn't give them any competitive edge, right? To create a mouse model to really mimic Alzheimer's disease condition. Why do you have to make that model again and generate very similar data? Why can't this be shared? So as an industry, we have to think how we can incentivize these companies, patients, labs to share data, maybe some monetization method. So that's the only way to bring that data. Second piece is how can we create an infrastructure to harmonize their data, like SciSpot is doing that one company at a time. But as an industry, we're connecting tens of thousands of companies working collaboratively. So how can we harmonize data spread across these companies? Once you have that level of data, then you will come close to replacing uh, wet lab. But for that, it's a, it's a long journey. Yeah, and I think you you touch on a good point, and it leads me to think about just the lack of standardization in this industry. And again, I think early days, it was almost like the IP was in. We used to talk about how a scientist had good hands because they could get experiments to, to work in some favorable way. And now we look back with technology and AI and what an insane thing to say. But that that's still how it exists in, in some organizations, in some labs, whether it's in academia or at a larger biotech or pharma. I think we pride ourselves that the lack of standardization actually contributes, right, to value and differentiation for the org. How can we get past that? This is something that we thought a lot at my time at at Stratios because we were onboarding customer protocols onto automation. And so we would see that there were generic high throughput assays that we would be working with, but sometimes there would be this reagent added at this step or after this step or in different concentrations. Or there would be tweaks, right, of commercially available standardized protocols that worked based on controls. Any thoughts on how we can try to achieve a level of standardization in the industry that still allows organizations to be able to have IP in their process? That's a very good point. So like most companies have two types of experiments, bespoke 
and then very standardized, repeatable. But the question is, how can we standardize or make a bespoke experiments even more predictable? I think the goal would be like, hey, this would be um, a pipeline of high throughput screening if you're working on you know, this target for this indication. How we are solving this problem is we currently over 20 workflows, research workflows, created a data model. So we know if you're working on organ on chip, how your data flows, you receive cells, you grow them, you prepare media, you create microfluidic chip. So how their data flows, uh, you bring data from microscopes, you bring data from cell counters. So what is the structure of the data? What is the format of the data? So we are templatizing that data model, which is very high level. Think of it as a digital the company with the nodes and edges, right? So what type of to how what associations they have in a graphical database. We form that for a company. But to uh, standardize it, that's what we want to do. Eventually, standardize it enough. So you want to start a company, a lab-grown meat company. Uh, you come to the platform and say, I'm going to grow muscle cells uh, using biopsy of uh, this animal. And uh, this is the final product. I want to create. Based on that, system recommends their own data dictionary, own set of experiments to replace. It will take time. We also need the feedback loop in place. We have this global collective intelligence to support each of the customer to create their own data model or to recommend a data model. That's step number one. But then for bespoke experiment, make sure our models are smart enough to recommend some protocol deviation based on changes in their requirements. We are not there yet, but we are in that direction. Yeah, that's a good point. And going back to in terms of, of lab of the future, I think another layer that we worked on is, is providing some sort of abstraction layer. How can we allow scientists to focus on the science, whether that's wet lab work or dry lab work, and not have to worry about all of the data infrastructure, how to program lab automation, what each of these settings mean, how to translate protocols into code, et cetera. Can you talk about SciSpot and how you think about abstracting away all of the nuanced details of, of doing biology and, and how that leads to broader democratization within the industry? It's a very good point. Scientists are like artists. Their domain of power is not necessarily to do all the admin work. And we want to make sure we take all this load away from them. I see AWS story. A decade ago, most companies used to set up their own servers. AWS democratized. What we want to do is when you start a company, you have your own data infrastructure set up with all the right databases, calculated columns, all the Python scripts. You receive data, you have to do manipulation, you have to do analysis, you have to do data handover. How to automate all of that? Rather than companies investing millions of dollars setting up their own data infrastructure and then scientists doing all the manual work, doing all the calculations every time. Why can't we just automate that? Currently, we do this for over 20 R&D workflows, but our goal is to really support all the workflows that we generally see in the bio research and development stages to templatize that and to automate their workflows. Yeah, and I think there's this additional value here. I talk to a lot of startups and a few of them are in later growth stage and now they are thinking about AI. But going back, it's, oh shoot, we forgot to think about structuring the data or capturing the data, right, this way or that way in a way that we needed it to be so that we can actually have good data. 
inputs going into our models and our algorithms. And that's a huge lost opportunity for a company like that. In effect, what you are doing is creating these templates and guiding them essentially. 100%. When I see companies with no focus on data strategy, it gives me heartburn. <laughs> AI models, we already have an advanced model and we continue to see that progress. But I think what will become really valuable is unique set of data that companies generate. So these are unique digital brains that you can leverage to amazing pattern recognition, prediction, rather than focusing on single molecule, you can operate as a platform company, leveraging your own historical data. But most companies miss that and we want to change that. Again, what I'm getting here, and I completely agree with the sentiment, is that However little data you think you're capturing, that is all unique data. And so I think this is a call out for every single organization who's working in this to really take a step back and think, hey, have we thought about our data strategy? And again, this is something that can continue to evolve. It's not something you need to have set in stone and it never changes. But there needs to be somebody or a small team that comes together and thinks about what is the data that we're capturing, where is the the value? How is this unique? I didn't want to bring Gen AI into this, but as you think about generative AI, the value really lies in organizations that now have access to these very proprietary data sets because, again, there's all these open source models that folks can use, um, but the value will be using industry and proprietary and very specific data that organizations will have in order to fine-tune and customize these models for very specific use cases. I think this is a wake-up call for, for anyone listening. Definitely make sure that you understand the, the value of your data and are set up to be able to leverage it. 100%. I want to go back to the beginning because we just dived into the company and then some of the industry challenges, but I want to learn a little bit about your background. What led you to this founder journey and starting a company like SciSpot? Yeah, I'm a former proud lab rat, molecular <laughs> biologist. <laughs> Before SciSpot, I spent a decade helping scale other biotech software companies, scientists.com, Science Exchange, US in Germany. So the whole journey started with a loss in a family because a drug took too long to come to market. And I teamed up with my brother, same uh, intrinsic motivation for both of us. And for the last decade, I've been thinking, what makes biology so complex? Why it takes a decade to bring a drug molecule to market? And I realize it's no surprise, these models, these biology is very complex, right? It's still not at the engineering level. You cannot just plug and play design and go to market. It'll still take its time. But the fastest way to reduce time is to create their digital identity, capture as many variables as possible, capture data stored across historical databases or company generate themselves, and then guide the company while they're doing research. So our hope is how can we reduce this from 10 years to even few months, if that's even realistic, and what it will take. So we started as a data infrastructure. Currently, we are working on multi-agent model. So on top of data model through prompt engineering, our goal is to, based on the customer's own knowledge graph, recommend them what they need to do differently and answer questions, give them insight based on their data and also collect the knowledge graph that we have using public source data and other sources. 
that was the motivation. How can we reduce the time it takes to bring drug molecule to market faster? And now when we see how the whole the bio-revolution is on the horizon, it will not just be new classes of medicine, it will be new classes of fabric, classes of all the biomaterial. I think McKinsey says 60% of physical goods are going to be manufactured biology. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's the time period, just a decade or so. And I totally believe that we see thousands of new companies every year. And it's an honor to support these companies with our data infrastructure. You mentioned this earlier, but the field that I'm following closely is uh, around alternative proteins in terms of just thinking about how can we create enough nutritious food to feed a growing population. Yeah, even therapeutic food. Yeah, you see, food as medicine. That's yeah, cool. someone telling me, they gave me the example, they want to create donut with therapeutic property. And I was like, I need a reason to <laughs> eat donut every day. Let me know when that happens. I'll be the, <laughs> I'll be the first in line. SciSpot is based in Canada, and if I'm not mistaken, specifically outside or around the Waterloo area. Can you talk about, as you were building and growing this company, maybe some of the advantages when it came to building a company in Canada, whether it's access to talent or capital or partnerships? We are headquartered in Canada, and we also have presence in Seattle. My co-founder is based in Seattle. Most of our investors, customers, based in Seattle and Bay Area. I moved here in the middle of pandemic uh, to start SciSport in 2020. What I really liked about Canada, obviously the visa thing, right, US, it's very complicated. That was one of the reasons why I chose Canada in the first place. Uh, but there are other incentives, like for product innovation, this place is amazing. Access to University of Waterloo talent. We hire co-ops, full-time engineers, and these young talent, 20-year-old kids, they make me question what I did to my life. They're so smart. Talent is exceptional. So for product innovation, there's quite a bit of support. We have Shred program, we have IRAP program, we have uh, Ontario Center of Innovation program. The support system from government for incubation stage for product innovation, it's exceptional. For scale, US is still the market. Canada is amazing for product innovation, access to talent, very affordable in terms of product innovation. You don't have to raise tens of millions to create a breakthrough product. And for customer acquisition, for fundraising, we find U.S. still very fast with their decisions, more entrepreneurial. As a startup, it's easier to sell in the U.S., especially in the Bay Area. As a startup, it's very hard to sell in conservative markets, including Europe and Canada. Yeah, and how important was it for you to have an office in Seattle? You mentioned your majority of the customer basis is in the U.S., and um, I know global as well, and I'll get to that in the next question. But how important was it to have this U.S. presence and office? So presence in U.S. is a must-have, whether it's a virtual presence or real-world presence. Zoom calls become a norm, so you don't have to travel as much as you used to. For startups, it's also reduction in the friction startups had to face. But I do spend quite a bit of time in the U.S. We do have boots on the ground uh, in the U.S. I would say it's must-have, especially for our industry, because time and effort you have to spend when a customer or get an investment is much less than what you would have to spend in conservative markets. And I know, again, not just in the U.S., but you all now have clients and customers globally. Can you talk about the path to that? Was it something that was intentional on your part or did you happen to just come across opportunities? It was organic, a word of mouth, 
same network of investors, social media, so many companies, even in Africa, India, Singapore, Europe, they learned about us and they are our customers. It's also growing. Some markets are very cost sensitive. Some markets require freemium as a must have. So you have to really balance all these forces. So how do you optimize for that? The cultural differences. So yeah, we have to balance all of that. What's the biggest challenge that you face when um, operating internationally? I think focus is for startup because you're always fighting with competing priorities. You have to focus. So international market depends on which international market you want to pick. Some cultures are more relationship driven. If they just heard about you, they're not going to buy like enterprise product without building that relation. So for that, in-person meetings becomes mandatory. Some cultures are buying capacity in countries because of currency difference or experiences. So you have to see how to give them instant aha moment. When they come to your platform, they get some instant insight. They're not going to wait for a week to get that moment. So different cultures have different sensitivity and tolerance for different things, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I love your your use of aha moment. That's just so critical because, again, we can talk about all of the, the value of a product, but really the customer needs to not just see that. Sometimes it's a visceral feeling, especially for, yeah. for scientists who have been working in the lab. And I remember when I was at Stradios, there was this one big aha moment operating a remote cloud lab. We had lab automation that was running experiments. The customer would submit experiment. The automation would pick it up and, and run it. And when it was done, the data would immediately flow back to a dashboard within the customer account and they would refresh and they just saw the data pop up. And that was like the aha moment. It was like, I literally specified an experiment, didn't do anything else and took about maybe 30 minutes for the experiment to run. Can you share a couple of, of aha moments that you all have had? What does that look like for a size bot customer? I joined some of these onboarding calls and set up all the integrations and they see the knowledge graph and they start seeing patterns that they never notice. They them excited. Other thing is when they automate their workflows, not just the integration, but manipulation. Very small things, automating calculation of standard curves in real time. It's really fun to see. We are in 23 and still these things are not automated. I think as an industry like biotech, what A16Z recently said in one of the articles, this is biotech tech moment. So we need more tech stack. If you compare biotech industry from travel tech, co-founder comes from travel tech industry. And when I exposed him to this industry, it was like, this industry is primitive, ancient. I think this is needed and we are very excited to be still very early in this transformation. To close us out, I'd love to know as an entrepreneur yourself and having gone through this journey and still living through it, what advice would you give to fellow entrepreneurs that are looking to do something in the industry and space? Any advice? I think advice would be the motivation has to be intrinsic because it's so hard, so challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It will accelerate your aging. You have to pay the price for any big ambition you have. If you are really motivated, if you feel connected with the problem you are solving, then I think it gives you the purpose. And if it gives you the purpose, you will stop counting hours. So if you enjoy the work, it becomes a passion. And I think if you 
are connected with the problem you're solving. You really care about your potential users if you are in the process of starting. Then I would say jump in, especially in bio and health. Biotech, although cost to generate data is going down, but still the value of usable data is going up. To create these data-based companies, create a unique set of models to power or to even utilize AI models. Make sure we are ready to take advantage of AI evolution we are seeing. Yeah, I think what I heard is uh, if you're passionate about solving a problem in this space, um, that's absolutely needed in order to, I won't say necessarily be successful, but to survive, right, and be in it for the long run to be able to have some chance of seeing success at the end of the tunnel. It's still early, right? There's a huge opportunity and that's why people are, are diving in. Everybody from other industries are like, this is so primitive, but that's why we're all here because there is such a huge opportunity. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can use from other industries and how they've thought about digital transformation and apply it to science and biology. Again, even just starting with how poorly understood the human body is and how we can have better models. And we're starting to see really positive signs in terms of AI adoption and transformation within biotech and pharma. Again, these are the large incumbents. And the fact that we're seeing acceptance, adoption, and even excitement, right, to bring more of that technology into the organization, I think that really shows how times are changing. And I think it's going to be a much more open environment for anyone building technology and digital tools in this space. Thank you so much, Guru. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for all your insights. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.